0: Hey, everybody, this is Pat Kelly from Road Trip Radio. You're listening to a very special episode. That's because if you've been listening all summer... You'll know that in each episode of Road Trip Radio, we've been playing one little tiny part of a serialized drama called The Spaghetti Bandit. Well, many of you asked if we could put The Spaghetti Bandit all together in one place so you could enjoy the story in one episode. So that's what this episode is. Without further ado, I'd like to hand it over to the creator and host of The Spaghetti Bandit, Grant Lawrence. Enjoy. What you are about to hear is true. These events occurred a few years ago in the Canadian wilderness. Some names have been changed to protect the innocent and the guilty. My name is Grant Lawrence, and this is the story of the Spaghetti Bandit. Chapter 1. The Intruder It was early spring, which meant the first few cottagers were showing up after a long, cold winter. The hardiest were eager to open up their cabins for the season. Rory and his wife Julie and their three boys powered their boat across the churning water. When they arrived at the rocks right below their cabin, Rory secured their boat while the boys clambered up. They found their hidden key and they let themselves in. Rory and Julie followed a few minutes later They were weighed down like pack mules with their groceries and their knapsacks, and the cabin was cold, so Rory's first order of business as the dad was to build a fire in their pot-bellied stove. He opened up the lid to stuff it full of wood, and he pulled back, startled. The fireplace was already stuffed full. Inside, Rory found an empty wine bottle... A dirty plate, a bowl, a fork, and a knife, all stacked neatly on top of the ashes. Rory's first thought was, what have my kids done now? But then, in the boys' bedroom, which is in the middle rear of their tiny cabin, the boys discovered something else. The stub of a candle melted onto the railing of their lower bunk. On the ceiling was a black spot of smoke from a candle's flame. Someone's been in the cabin, said Rory with hesitation. Then Julie called out from the kitchen, Who put the dirty pot into the cupboard without washing it? Investigating further, outside, they found a collection of empty spaghetti and soup cans neatly stacked behind a rock. Rory realized that not only had someone broken into their cabin at some point during the winter, but that person had lived in their cabin for a prolonged period of time. The intruder purposefully chose that middle rear bedroom to allow as little light as possible to escape at night. Presumably, he stayed until the food ran out. He broke into the cabin by lifting the sliding glass door up and off its rollers. It left the whole family in a creepy state of unease. Rory and his family didn't know it yet, but their cabin was just one stop of many for someone who would become known as the Spaghetti Bandit. Their cabin was the middle point in a saga that would involve an RCMP manhunt that would stretch out over a year. But to fully understand this strange story, you have to go back to a secret First Nations burial cave in the next chapter of the Spaghetti Bandit. Chapter 2. The Cave Almost a year before the discovery of the cabin break-in, something far more disturbing occurred about 10 kilometers deeper into the wilderness. Jenny, a First Nations guardian, was escorting an archaeologist to a secret, sacred burial cave high on a cliffside. It was only accessible by boat. On that summer day, the guardian pulled her zodiac up to the shore and the archaeologist hopped out first. Familiar with the site and the trail, the archaeologist started climbing up the extremely steep grade. As she continued to climb, the distinct smell of wood smoke drifted into her nostrils. Soon, she heard the crackle of a fire. It was a hot summer that year. There was a province-wide fire ban. She came into the clearing and the entrance to the cave. She stood frozen in fear at what she saw. Hunched over a small campfire about 50 feet away was a thin man, about 30 years old with long, straggly black hair. He rose slowly to his full six-foot height when he noticed the young archaeologist. No words were spoken as she regained control of herself and slowly backed down the trail. Soon she met Jenny on her way up. When Jenny heard there was a man at the burial site, she was perplexed. They hadn't seen another boat along the shoreline or in the bushes along the trail. How did the man get here? Together, Jenny and the archaeologist returned to the clearing to confront the man. Who are you? What are you doing here? Jenny called from the edge of the clearing. The man was at the entrance of the cave now. His clothes tattered. His posture hunched. He was missing several teeth. Camping, the man replied in a low, unsure voice. His camping gear appeared to be minimal. All the woman noticed was a white plastic bag sitting near the mouth of the cave and a crumpled blue sleeping bag. Well, you can't camp here, Jenny shouted back. This is a First Nations burial site. How did you find this place? She questioned. I walked. You walked from where? From the road. What road? There's no road around here for miles, buddy. From the end of the logging road. Jenny and the archaeologist glanced at each other. The end of the logging road was many kilometers away as the crow flies, through dense, seemingly impenetrable forest, mountains, valleys, and lakes. Jenny knew there was an ancient network of First Nations trails through that forest, but doubted this white boy would have the wherewithal to find them. And yet, here he was. You know there's a fire ban, eh? Jenny squinted at the fire, and a feeling of horror passed over her. What are you burning? Chapter 3 The Stakeout The First Nation's guardian peered into the fire and noticed what looked like planks. She demanded to know what the man was burning. I found wood in the cave. You found wood in that cave? That wood, that wood is from sacred burial boxes. Those are coffins. You are desecrating this site. You're breaking the law. Jenny pulled out her phone, but she couldn't get a signal so she snapped a picture of the man before he could turn back into the cave. The two women turned to go back down the trail, fearful that the man would follow them or try to stop them. As soon as she had a cell signal, Jenny immediately informed her manager, Eric, of the unwelcome camper at the burial site. The next morning, Eric and two RCMP officers arrived at the site in a police launch. Eric followed the officers as they crept up the trail. When they arrived at the cave, the man was gone. He had mostly broken camp, but it was obvious he had left in a hurry. There was plenty he left behind, including a stack of well-worn adventure novels inside the cave. A cave that also housed ancient human bones. Jenny was right. The man had been using burial boxes as firewood. As far as Eric was concerned, the intruder had destroyed the site. Tampering with a First Nations burial site was illegal. The RCMP could arrest him. But first they had to find him. Eric had no idea how long the chase would last. Eric had a sense that the man with the long black hair was still nearby and would very likely return to the cave once they left. So they went back to their boat, but instead of leaving the area... They motored into the next cove, tied up again, and approached the cave from a higher angle to stake it out. They'd pounce as soon as the man would return. But he never did. Not only that, but Eric had a foreboding feeling that they were the ones being watched. Chapter 4. The Yellow Kayak After the intruder left the burial cave, he wasn't seen again for the rest of the summer or the fall. Though they searched high and low, it was a huge wilderness area, and it was assumed that the spaghetti bandit had simply fled. But he hadn't gone anywhere. On a clear, calm day in the following winter, a construction crew showed up at a waterfront cabin in Gideon Bay, several kilometers down the shoreline from the burial caves and several kilometers away from Rory's cabin. When the workmen entered the front door of this cabin, they were startled to hear the sounds of someone scrambling out the back door. Looking around, they realized that the closed-down cabin was being lived in. Dirty dishes were on the kitchen counter, and much like Rory's cabin, empty spaghetti cans were stacked outside the back door. They searched the cabin, and at the very back of the building, in a walk-in closet, they found a human burrow of sorts. The closet had a musky odour. A crumpled blue sleeping bag was laid out on the floor of the closet with a few dog-eared books surrounding a dirty pillow. Beside the pillow, the stub of a candle. It became clear to the workman that the intruder had chosen the closet because no light would escape through the windows when he was reading at night. The intruder took off into the woods behind the cabin without even his backpack, which upon inspection was filled with survival equipment, maps and waterproof containers and soggy outdoor clothing, but no ID of any kind. The workers spent an uneasy day on the renovation because they knew he couldn't be far and probably wanted his stuff back. He was likely watching their every move. Was he armed? Was he crazy? At the end of their workday, they locked up the cabin and then discussed what to do with the backpack. They agreed to report the incident to police, but at the same time, they felt compelled to leave his backpack out for him. Maybe he was lost and hungry. They placed the backpack on the edge of the deck. When they returned the next morning with the RCMP, the backpack was gone, and so was he. This time, the spaghetti bandit made his getaway by stealing a yellow kayak. The only thing was, no one would realize that that yellow kayak was missing until months later. Chapter 5, The Storm. Several kilometers down the coast, Bob motored his boat through a horrendous storm towards his dock. Bob never let bad weather bother him. Bob rarely let anything bother him. He was generally a happy-go-lucky guy. Bob looked far younger than his years for a retiree. He was lean and very able, and Bob was just as much at home at his water-access-only cabin than he was anywhere, even when a terrible storm was blowing up, which it was on that March weekend. After tying up his boat in the pouring rain, his eyes were drawn to a brightly colored foreign object on his beach. Tucked behind a couple of logs was a yellow kayak. Its bowline was tied to a shoreline shrub, which indicated to Bob that it hadn't just drifted there in the storm. Someone had secured it there. At the time, Bob had no idea it was stolen. Bob peered into the beat-up old kayak, and it was filled with supplies, pots and pans and soiled maps and a soaking blue sleeping bag. Bob thought the kayak must belong to someone trying to wait out the storm. But where was this person? As Bob was sorting through the kayak, neighbors from the next bay slowly motored by in their boat. Bob waved them down and told them about the kayak, and they agreed that it was strange and maybe someone got caught up in the storm. So they radioed the RCMP. No one had been reported missing in the storm, but the cops promised to send out a launch to investigate. The neighbors headed into town, leaving Bob alone against the wilderness. Bob carefully inspected his cabin and noticed something odd. A chest-high mud stain on the outside of his sliding glass door. It was as if someone had placed their shoulder against it. But everything was secure. No one had broken it. Then he walked along the shoreline to his neighbor's tiny one-room cabin. They had a Dutch door, you know, the kind uh, with the top half, that can open and the bottom half stays shut. Curiously, the top half was open, and yet Bob's neighbors hadn't been at their cabin all winter long. Peering inside, Bob saw a large pile of sodden clothes on the floor. Bob hesitantly entered the one-room cabin and was immediately besieged by the odor. It reeked of rotten B.O., like someone who hadn't showered in a long, long time, or worse. It smelled like decay. Someone truly filthy had been living in that tiny cabin for a long time, weeks, months, maybe all winter long. Bob's heart raced when he noticed the bottom bunk. Was there someone under the blankets? Bob considered getting out of there, but he couldn't move. Finally, Bob spoke. Hello? The figure didn't move. Hello? Hesitantly, Bob reached down and pulled back the blanket. Chapter 6. The Police. Bob carefully pulled the blankets back of the lower bunk. What he was certain was a body was in fact just more soiled clothing. He let out a sigh of uneasy relief and leaned back against the cupboards. Then he left to check out the rest of the empty residences that surrounded him on Mossy Point. When he arrived at his neighbor Candy's cabin, he slowly walked around the wraparound deck. Everything seemed okay, but he wanted to be sure. Just as he was about to peer through a crack in her curtains... The police launch entered the bay. He turned and walked back to his dock to meet them. If he had turned back at that moment and looked back at Candy's cabin, he might have noticed one of Candy's curtains parting ever so slightly. The RCMP officers, different than those involved in the burial cave stakeout, came ashore and looked around and inspected his neighbor's tiny cabin and the yellow kayak. It was pouring, and the wind was howling, and the cops took photos and wrote a soggy report. After about half an hour, one of them turned to Bob and yelled over the rain. Well, you can be rest assured he's gone now. What? replied Bob. This is his kayak right here. That means he's still here. I don't think so, said the other officer. You must have scared him off. He must have walked out. Walked out? Do you know where you are? You can't walk out of here. There's nothing back there. The only way out of here is by boat, and that is his boat. That means he's still going to be here someplace. He's long gone, the first officer repeated as they began to climb back into the dry comfort of their police launch. Wait, are you at least going to take the kayak? No, you know what? Keep it for your troubles. Bob was stunned. Not only was the kayak evidence, it was likely stolen property from some other victimized cabin. Like the construction crew did months earlier, Bob left the kayak where it was and went inside his cabin for the night, alone, and creeped out that this phantom menace was still out there somewhere. At around 2 a.m., Bob woke from his light sleep with a start. Even over the roar of the gale, the sound was unmistakable. The spaghetti bandit was outside. Chapter 7. The Aftermath Bob spent a restless night as the storm wreaked havoc outside. He was certain the Spaghetti Bandit had, had to be close by, and he was right. At about 2 a.m. over the storm, he heard the distinct thudding and scraping sounds of a kayak being dragged over logs and rocks. Despite the wind and the rain and the waves, it was the spaghetti bandit making another getaway right into the eye of the storm in a pitch black night. He paddled straight into it. Bob doubted the sanity of anyone who would attempt paddling a kayak in that weather at night. Bob doubted that he would ever make it to the other side. The next morning, Bob walked back over to Candy's cabin to have another look. He peeked through the curtains and immediately noted dirty dishes and empty tin cans on the counter. Candy would never leave that kind of stuff out at the end of the season. He tried the door. It was open. In the living room, there was a chair set up facing the break in the curtains. Beside the chair, an empty bottle of booze. Bob had been on the other side of that glass the day before. The spaghetti bandit had been inside, watching him. Just like all the other cabins, towels were taped to windows to block out light. On the floor of Candy's bedroom, Bob noticed a large buck knife. Word of the spaghetti bandit spread, and by the time the rest of the cottagers had arrived for spring break to take stock, the spaghetti bandit had broken into and stolen from at least a dozen cabins over several kilometers. It was generally agreed that the bandit had been respectful in most places, but it left the scattered cabin communities in a state of unrest. Was he still out there? Did he ever survive that 2 a.m. paddle? Was the Spaghetti Bandit dead or alive? Chapter 8. The Sightings As summer burst upon the Canadian wilderness, it had been a year since anyone had actually laid eyes on the Spaghetti Bandit. People started wondering if he was a ghost. Then, one night in July a farmer was woken up by his dogs barking loudly at around 4 a.m. When the farmer shone his flashlight beam down onto his dock in the pale morning light, he saw a tall, thin figure with long black hair scrambling to get into a yellow kayak. The Spaghetti Bandit was back. As summer progressed, the sightings became more frequent. Once, The owner of a local kayak touring company found the yellow kayak hidden in the logs along the shore near a trail that led to town. Another time, a boater reported seeing a long-haired skinny man armed with a rifle along the shoreline near an ancient aboriginal village site. The RCMP and Eric, that First Nations guardian who was involved in the stakeout, responded as quickly as they could. They followed his footprints up a trail and into the woods, Not knowing what they'd faced and hearing about a rifle, they drew their guns. The RCMP had their revolvers, and Eric had a shotgun. The bandit was once again camped out where an old village site once stood, but he was nowhere to be found. It left Eric feeling both infuriated and eerie. How did the bandit know where First Nations sites were? It wasn't obvious. Most were hidden. Why was he here? They found a lean-to of sawed-off four-inch rounders. On the forest floor, under the lean-to, was a blue crumpled sleeping bag. And the rifle. And many of the supplies that the bandit had stolen over the summer. Including a cache of canned food, most of which the RCMP seized. But once again, no sign of the bandit. Even though Eric tightly gripping his shotgun. Again, Sensity was close. Late that summer, there was another report. This one even more troubling. The spaghetti bandit was going bush. Chapter 9. The Search. In the final weeks of August, a report came in that an extremely gaunt man had been spotted stumbling along the shore in an obvious state of distress. His hands were on his head. He had no shoes, bad teeth, and long, stringy, dark hair that came down to his hips. He was loudly talking to himself. When someone is left alone long enough in the woods, insanity can creep in. Now this is often called going bush. There are three stages, but usually the final stage is a crippling paranoia, where you think that everyone is out to get you. In the spaghetti bandits case, well, the paranoia was just, everybody was out to get him. Eric and the RCMP once again rushed to the place where the bandit was spotted. With guns drawn on the trail, Eric couldn't believe it. The Spaghetti Bandit had managed to find yet another First Nations site. This time, it was worse than the burial cave and worse than the village site. Human excrement, empty tin cans, and garbage was strewn everywhere. But there was no yellow kayak and no Spaghetti Bandit. The search expanded. The RCMP brought in dog teams and helicopters. The bandit had escaped again without a trace. Everyone in the area was now on the lookout for a thin man with long black hair in a yellow kayak. Then, in the final week of September, they got him. But it wasn't the police. Chapter 10, The Capture. A local farmer named Francois peered out his kitchen window as a fog settled onto the water. Fall was coming. The days were getting short, the dew was thick, and the air was cool. Francois squinted into the fog, wondering if he was seeing things. Entering the Narrows was a man in a yellow kayak. Miguel! Francois called out to his tough, no-nonsense farmhand. Yellow kayak! That must be the Spaghetti Bandit. Grab the skiff and go get him. Bring him in here. Miguel hurried to the dock, hopped into the aluminum skiff and fired up the outboard motor. He roared into the narrows towards the kayaker, who maintained a steady stroke and didn't react to the sound of the engine. Miguel circled the kayaker and yelled at him to redirect his course into the dock, pointing to Francois. The kayaker did what he was told without protest or emotion. When the yellow kayak thumped lightly against the dock, Francois was shocked at the condition of the human being in front of him. Skin and bones, extremely malnourished. Eyes sunken into his skull. Cheeks hollow. Fingernails long, curved, and black. Dark hair, stringy, matted. He was maybe 100 pounds. The spaghetti bandit was starving. Miguel and Francois helped him out of the kayak. He was frail, like an old man, but he was probably only in his early 30s. They brought him inside and sat him down. You've upset a lot of people around here, Francois told him. The cops want you, First Nations want you, the cottagers want you. I know. The spaghetti bandit answered quietly, almost in a rasp. My adventure is over. Francois took pity on the reeking, living skeleton in front of him. He grilled him up a steak and set it down in front of him. Eat. The bandit picked up the cutlery and dug in and then stopped. Your knife is dull, he said. And then, from some unseen pocket... The bandit unsheathed a huge, gleaming knife. It sliced right through the stake. Francois tensed up and glanced at Miguel. They should have frisked him. Between mouthfuls, the bandit quietly explained that he had found an old trapper's cabin up the river, that he had been surviving on berries and roots. He mentioned that it was time for him to return to work in the oil fields of Fort Mack. He spoke of going east, that he had been surviving in the bush for over a year. Francois was surprised at how mild-mannered this wanted man was. He didn't seem that crazy. Look, you can sleep in my trailer tonight, okay, said Francois. But then he lowered his voice and leaned in towards the bandit, who was still gripping his buck Tomorrow morning, I'm going to give you one chance to get the hell out of this whole area and to never come back here. Do you understand me? The distant, sunken, bloodshot eyes of the spaghetti bandit slowly looked up. He nodded. My adventure is over, he repeated. When Francois woke the next morning, the spaghetti bandit and the yellow kayak were gone. No one has ever seen that kayak or that man again. No one knew where he came from or what his name was. No one knew anything about him. Maybe he's still out there somewhere. Maybe he was a ghost. But that ghost stole thousands of dollars worth of food and property and he still barely made it out alive. But he got away. The one thing we know for sure is that no one In this pocket of the Canadian wilderness, we'll ever forget the true story of the Spaghetti Bandit. I'm Grant Lawrence. Thanks for listening. And that concludes the story of the Spaghetti Bandit. For now, anyway. Thank you to everyone who helped me piece together the timeline and movements of The Spaghetti Bandit over the course of those many months. The Spaghetti Bandit was written by me and mixed and produced by my old pal, Chris Kelly. You can get in touch by emailing grant.lawrence at cbc.ca. The Spaghetti Bandit is a production of Kelly and Kelly. Thanks to them for the support of this story. I hope to share another one with you soon.